Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. And as we turn there, the song we just sang, Behold Our God, is precisely the endeavor that we are undertaking as we turn in Luke's gospel to chapter 9. Luke has laid out a series of, of miracles, powerful miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ to reveal clearly, to manifest clearly who he is, and ultimately to answer the question posed first by the disciples in a suddenly stilled sea, who is this? Answered in part by the demoniac, raised again by Herod as he hears reports of Jesus and the twelve, who is this? Finally, to be answered with clarity, by Peter in chapter 9, verse 20, Jesus asked him, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. And then, ultimately, by the audible voice of God the Father on the Mount of Transfiguration in verse 35, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So the question of who is this? And that we might look and see in the text of God's word who he is. That, that is the task set before us. And it can be particularly challenging because this morning we're going to study one of the most well-known, one of the most familiar miracles in the Bible. In fact, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle other than the resurrection to occur in all four Gospels. Every single gospel thought this miracle was significant enough to include in their text. Now, the danger with things that we're familiar with is familiarity breeds contempt. And so we need to be careful as we read this. We need to begin with some prayer, asking that the Lord would open our eyes. There is beauty and wondrous things to behold here. I'd like to begin by reading Luke Chapter 9, verses 10 to 17. Then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we will begin our study. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowd learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowds away to go to the surrounding villages and countryside to find a lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. He said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, and unless we're to go and buy food for all these people, there are about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves, the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. What was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Let's pray. Lord God. We echo the prayer of the psalmist. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. In particular, Lord, we, we pray that that veil that lies over the hearts of 
those who do not believe, and if we are honest at times, can lie over our own eyes, would be removed. That we would see the glory of your Son, the glory presented in this miracle and in your word. And that seeing that glory, we might be transformed from one image of glory to another. We pray that you would clearly settle the matter. Who then is this? And that you would create and strengthen faith in our hearts to trust this great Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. And this morning, we'll study a banquet in the wilderness. And we'll do it in three points as the story progresses. Banquet in the wilderness. We begin, here's your outline, a weary yet welcoming host. A weary yet welcoming host. Now, if you remember, Jesus has been very busy as of late. And Luke connected the events of our preceding passages. He's just sent out the 12. They return. They're giving him a report. And in that context, Jesus seeks for solitude with the disciples. This was, after all, his custom. Luke has pointed this out to us before. In Luke chapter 4, verse 30, 42, when he's finished ministering at Capernaum, what happens? When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. The people sought him and came to him would have kept him from leaving. Or immediately after healing the man with leprosy, it says he would withdraw to desolate places to pray. And so even though Jesus was a man of public ministry, what we learn is that the, the power of Jesus' public ministry is fueled by the pattern of his private ministry. What I mean by private ministry is private spiritual life, his, his prayer, his time alone with God. And so we keep seeing this picture of a man out in public, a man powerful in word and in deed, and yet this man who is God in the flesh knows that he needs time in prayer. He needs time in fellowship with the Father. He needs time in the Word. How much more than do we? So it's his custom, and he's, he's been busy. He's been, he's been doing a lot of ministry, a lot of work, and he seeks time alone with his disciples. Perhaps you can sympathize with this. If you've ever had a busy week, had a lot of things on your plate, and you set aside some time to go on a retreat, or to to, to carve out some time free of distractions. So Jesus takes his disciples up near Bethsaida, into a desolate or barren place out in the wilderness somewhere nearby, and they're going to have some time of prayer and fellowship. In fact, after this encounter, which surprises them, this is an unexpected intrusion, that's exactly where the text in Luke picks back up. Look at verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone. So I take it that, that this interruption interrupts what Jesus had planned to do originally, and that verse 18 picks back up with what the plan had been. He wants to get alone, he's going to pray, and then he's going to ask his disciples if they've yet figured out truly who he is. And even though that's Jesus' plan and his purpose, these crowds who are persistent, who want to follow him, interrupt this this getaway, this retreat. Jesus seeks solitude with his disciples. But I want you to notice what happens when they show up. A multitude of people, 5,000 men, possibly as many as 20,000 people total, because Matthew makes it clear, these are just the men, not the children, not the women, the men. 
And so anywhere up to possibly even 20,000 people. That's a lot of people. So you imagine you've got your little, you've got your little group, you've got your little circle. It's Jesus and 12 men. And then you start seeing thousands upon thousands of people coming over the hill. And when they spot you, they perk up, they, they pick up the pace. And your little, your little group, your little isolated camping trip is now five to 20,000 strong. What, what do you do? What Jesus does is amazing. I love this. He welcomes them. He welcomes them. We're going to see that the disciples, in short order, are going to get tired of these people and tell Jesus to send them away. Jesus does no such thing. He welcomes them. He welcomes them. This is the same word used back in chapter 8, verse 40, where the the crowds welcomed him upon his return on the boat. He returns, crosses over the Sea of Galilee. The crowds welcomed him. Here Jesus welcomes the crowds. One of the things we learn is that even though Jesus has just sent out his 12 apostles and told them that they will rely in much part upon the hospitality of others, this is, there's a reciprocity. Jesus himself modeling for them this ministry welcomes them. And I just want to pause and encourage you with a couple things. If, if, the, if the humbled Savior who needed sleep, who grew tired, has a heart like this for these people, will not our exalted God who never grows faint or weary, who never sleeps, Will he not welcome us as well? I mean, I think sometimes we can be tempted to think that I don't want to bother God with my prayer concerns. I don't want to bother God with my prayer. He doesn't want to hear from me. Here is the heart of your God manifest. Admittedly, he is tired. Admittedly, he does want some privacy. And when the crowds come to him, Mark, in telling the same passage, says he saw the great crowd. He had compassion on them. Mark 6, 34. Because they're like a sheep, without a shepherd. So, so here's the heart of, of your God. Here's the heart of your Savior. He welcomes. He welcomes those who come to him. And this is challenging for me. I, some weeks in ministry are busier than others, and, I, and I'm challenged repeatedly by this heart of Jesus that, that is, is welcoming those who come to him. And, and Jesus is modeling for his disciples ministry because notice the connection. What does he do when he welcomes them? He spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who were in need of healing. I go back to nine chapter, chapter 9, verse 2. This is exactly the commission he gave the apostles. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So here is Jesus speaking of the kingdom of God and healing. He is, in other words, modeling exactly the type of ministry he just commissioned the apostles to do. Exactly. He's doing the same thing. It's not like they did one thing, he did another. They were sent to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Jesus is speaking the kingdom of God and to heal. And so Jesus then is is teaching his disciples, here's your blank, by his example teaching his disciples by his example, his example of ministry. It's one that the Apostle Paul caught hold of. And when Apostle Paul's on his way to Jerusalem to be arrested, he's sent to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. When they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and tears with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching to you in public and from house to house. A little later, he says, I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. And, and the Lord's 
ambassadors, the Lord's ministers, and, and that's not just Pastor Daniel and me and the elders, that's all of us. This is the heart we're to have to each other. That we make room for each other, that, that we make time for each other, especially when there's need. That we welcome one another. The early church picked up on this with all of the hospitality commands that we are to welcome and receive one another. All here modeled by Jesus as he shows his disciples the heart and the manner in which they're to do the very ministry he had just commissioned them to do. And he spends the entire day ministering to the crowd. And Luke stresses that point as well because look at verse 12. The day began to wear away. This isn't just something he did for a few minutes. He spent hours of the day teaching about the kingdom of God and healing their poor. This wasn't what he planned to do. This isn't what he came here to do. I know if you're like me, when my plans get frustrated, I get frustrated, which is to say I get angry. When my plans don't happen the way, is, am I the only one? Okay. I'm, when, I, when things don't go the way I want them, when I had a certain plan, and I had it all planned out, and there's one more to do, and then something else happens, I can become irritable, impatient, and angry. Now here Jesus had a plan. He, he wanted to do something with the disciples. And he's surprised by thousands of people uninvited, interruption. And he welcomes them, and he doesn't just welcome them in pretense. He gives of himself the entire day ministering to them. Well, let us never doubt that he would welcome us the same way, and let us try to give the same compassion to others, the same welcome to others. So we see a weary and welcoming host in verses 10 through 11. Next, we turn to the needy and hungry guests. The needy and hungry guests. Verse 12. Now Luke doesn't draw our attention fundamentally to the sermon, what the teaching is. We know its general content is the kingdom of God. And the general content of the activity is teaching. We don't know specifically what he taught. We don't know how many people he healed. Luke's not interested in that. Now the camera moves forward in time to the day drawing nigh and ending. The sun's just getting ready to set. The people are still here. They've got to be hungry. They've got to realize that in a desolate place in Israel, it's going to get cold at night. They're not going anywhere. Why? They, they still want Jesus. They still want the ministry that he's giving to them. And in some respects, maybe they've learned the lesson that Jesus himself demonstrated in chapter 4 when tempted by the devil, saying that it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. In other respects, they anticipate the good desire of Mary. You remember, we just turned up to chapter 10 in Luke. Jesus goes to the house of Mary and Martha. Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching, verse 40, but Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Well, this crowd, even though they could see that the day was drawing to an end, even though they knew they were out away from businesses that would sell food, they're out in a desolate place, they remained. Perhaps it was because they were choosing the good portion. Perhaps they had faith that Jesus might provide. I don't know. But they're needy. And they're hungry. But they're not just hungry for food. They're hungry for the word of God. And that's why they stay. The crowd remained despite their hunger. 
then we see the disciples. We've seen Jesus welcoming attitude, welcoming them, welcoming them. And then the disciples come, and in some sense, they're correcting Jesus, right? They're, they're, they're giving Jesus instructions. This is an imperative. They're telling him what to do. I mean, you can only imagine, like, Jesus must be losing track of time. Does he realize what's happening? So they sort of get a little huddle. They get together. They, and they tell him, they don't suggest to him, the 12 came and said to him, send the crowd away. Very different heart than Jesus. Send the crowd away. Why? To go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging, to get provision. For we are here in a desolate place. There's no, there's no provisions here, Jesus. There's no beds here. There's no food here. There's no markets here. Send them away. This is something the disciples do with some sad... Um, pattern. This isn't the only time they want to send people away. Um, in Mar- Matthew 15, um, 23 is another example. Send her away, for she is crying out after us. They want to send the children away. Oh, protect the teacher, protect the teacher. And in contrast to that, Jesus showing them the heart of ministry that he has that welcomes even when his plans are interrupted. So they, they tell Jesus that. Well, Jesus responds with a test, with a challenge. This is probably the part of the text that I most struggled over as I was, as I was uh, preparing this message. Because in the Greek, it's emphatic. You yourself give them something to eat. It's an odd statement. What is he challenging them to do? What does this mean? So they come to him with the audacity to correct, to instruct Jesus Either Jesus has forgotten these things and they'll help inform him. And then Jesus turns to them. Why don't you give them something to eat? No, why don't you give them something to eat? Now, what on earth is Jesus getting at? I think there's two possibilities. One, Jesus wants to get them to ask him to provide for the multitudes. That's possible. But I think, given the context, there's a, there's a better answer a better reason. If you remember, the disciples have just returned from a, from a ministry missions trip where they were given power. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure disease. He's just given them power to do this. And here is Jesus, and their mission was to, to preach the kingdom of God and to cure. What is Jesus now doing? The exact same thing they were to be doing. And now Jesus, who's given them power, turns to them and says, you give him something to eat. One, one commentator unpacks this possibility this way. The statement Jesus made was emphatic. The emphasis fell on the word you. Jesus was putting the onus on the apostles. He was saying, you give them something to eat. They were the ones who noticed the people had need and who wanted to send them away. They were the ones who now had the responsibility to provide. Jesus was insistent, you feed them. Here it helps to remember the context. The apostles had just completed a short-term mission trip in which they had performed many miracles. Could it be that in the name of Christ, they also had the power to feed the hungry? You'll never know, because the disciples never obeyed Christ's command. Instead, they just admitted their powerlessness to help. Another clue that this might be the correct answer is that there's, there's an Old Testament antecedent to this, a picture of people 
hungry. And it's not even necessarily the one that you're thinking of. You're thinking of manna. And John's gospel will make that connection explicit. That just as the, the bread came down from heaven, mediated by Moses, so Jesus is the true bread from heaven. But turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. Jesus' instruction to his disciples is very, very similar to the instruction Elisha gives to his servant. And if you remember, Moses and Elijah are going to be the ones meeting with Jesus on the mountain. As people imagine who Jesus is, they might be one of the prophets or Elijah. And we've had a lot of Elijah and Elisha imagery since we've been in chapter 4. There is one event similar to this. Now, Elisha is caring for prophets of the Lord. In verse 42, a man came from Baal Shalisha. Shalisha. Okay. Bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give to them men that they may eat. Similar to what Jesus says, you, you give them something to eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. In other words, here's an Old Testament antecedent. Elisha, the prophet of the Lord, has hungry disciples and he has a small amount of food, and yet he commands his servant to feed it to them. The servant says, this isn't enough to feed them. He says, give it to them anyway. They'll have leftovers. Really very similar to what's going on here. And so even Jesus' command, you, you give them something to eat, might possibly even jar in their memory this account in Second Kings. But no, neither do they make that connection, nor do they turn to the Father in prayer. They just turn back to Jesus and say to him, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. What do, you, what do you mean give them something to eat? The trouble with the disciples was that they were looking at things from a merely human perspective. They were acting like men without a God, thinking only in terms of what they had on hand and what they had the ability to provide from their own resources, not considering the power and the providence of God. They're looking at it purely humanly speaking, right? There's plenty of times where, humanly speaking, what is set in front of us, we can't possibly do, right? Plenty of times where, with the resources I have, with the energy I have, with the food I have, this, this can't be done. And yet we're dealing with an omnipotent God who declares in his word that his glory is in working through our weakness, precisely why this miracle brings so much glory to Jesus is because he accomplishes it not through the strength and the abundance of the apostles, but through their weakness and their lack. And the same God who can supply, and we're going to see Jesus supply and supply and supply and supply and work through their weakness. But they don't get it. They just turn back to me. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough food. We give up. Well, Thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Point three, we're now going to see the great provision of the Lord of the feast. Great provision of the Lord of the feast. Banquet in the wilderness. 
And what Jesus does is he begins by organizing the people into manageable groups. Now, in groups of 50, might be groups of 50 total, or groups of 50 households. If these men are representing households, that's possible. There's a lot of groups. We got between five and 20,000 people breaking down into groups. Jesus is simply taking a pattern instituted by Moses in Israel of how to organize the people. In Exodus 18, 21, um, Moses sets up that they're to set up chiefs over thousands, over hundreds, over fifties, and over tens. It's just, it's just good management. And the disciples are still going to have work to do. They're still going to have work to do here. because you, you do the math, even if it's 50 sets of households, which are really groups of hundreds, to get five to 20,000, that's a lot of groups. We know they have at least 12 baskets, so each of the disciples can be carrying baskets of food. Jesus organizes the crowd into manageable groups. And then Jesus does what the disciples didn't do. He looks to his father for the food they need. He, he, he looks up to heaven. And I think that's, that's notable because the contrast is the sight of the disciples was on the ground in front of them. All they could see was the problem and all they could see was their inability. Jesus lifts his eyes. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed over them and he broke them, the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. Jesus looks to his father for the food they need. And then the miracle happens. And we're so used to this, we can just skim right over it and not be amazed. Now Luke's description is clear in Greek. He, he blessed it, he took it, he blessed it, he broke, and he gave. The blanks are Jesus blessed, broke, and gave. But that last one, gave, is in the imperfect. It's, it's what he's continually doing. What Jesus is doing is there's this, he just keeps breaking and giving and breaking and giving. And and this is going to take some time. This is not a short miracle. I mean, imagine how long it would take. You've got 12 disciples with 12 baskets lining up in front of Jesus. And here's Jesus breaking and giving, and the basket fills up. Off goes, you know, Peter. And he goes to a group. And now up comes, you know, Ma- you know Matthew. And he's just doing this until five to 20,000 people not just have a snack, not just keep the wolf from the door, are full. They can't eat anymore. And still there's more food. This is absolutely astounding. This might have taken hours, this miracle. As Jesus is creating out of nothing food and fish and bread. Another interesting thing here is that in Luke's gospel, that pattern of those four words, take, blessed, broke, gave, occurs at two other points. It becomes almost formulaic. Turn to Luke chapter 22. I think you know where we're going. This is the Last Supper. It's Jesus institutes the Lord's table. And what he's really doing is co-opting or, or reinterpreting or adding new meaning to the Passover meal. And the Passover meal is the meal where the Jews would take a lamb into their home, would live with them for a week. Then, Passover... Uh, the father would put his hand on the back of the lamb's neck, slice its throat. He had to do it himself. The priest couldn't do it for him. The lamb would die. Take the blood of the lamb. They put it over the doorpost. And then the family would eat the lamb. And, and the angel passed over them in Egypt. And this was a picture of God's passing over of judgment over sin. And Jesus takes this meal. And in Luke twenty-two nineteen, look at the pattern. He took bread. When he had given thanks, same word for blessed, he broke it and gave to them. 
Look one more time, two more chapters ahead. Chapter 24, a stranger on the road to Emmaus. Remember, Jesus gets him and the group of travelers to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. They talk about the scriptures. When they get there, they have a meal. Luke 24, 30 to 32. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, took the bread, blessed, broke it, and gave it to them. Take, blessed, broke, gave. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. So Luke sets up this pattern of these words as formulaic, and when he does that, something, something important is happening. Um, one commentator explains it this way. It is present in the feeding of the 5,000, the Last Supper, and the banquet at Emmaus. In each banquet, the theme of revelation and recognition is paramount. The wilderness banquet is sandwiched between Antipas's Herod's question, who then is Jesus, and Peter's answer, you are the Messiah of God. In the Last Supper, the fourfold liturgy, those four words, of institution is repeated in the context of a Passover meal that inaugurates the new covenant of the kingdom of God. And at the fourfold use of those words during the Emmaus banquet, the eyes of the disciples were opened and they recognized Jesus for who he was. Luke thus employs the formula, took, blessed, broke, gave in three critical and calculated contexts in each instance of which the breaking and dispensing of bread to the disciples is a revelatory symbol of Jesus' self-giving in his passion and resurrection through which the disciples recognized him as the fulfillment of the scriptures. So in doing this, Luke is showing us Jesus is revealing something of himself and we're to recognize something of himself in this great miracle. So what are, what are we supposed to recognize? What are we supposed to learn and see in this miracle? Why, why this miracle? All four Gospels. Well, at least two things. At least two things. First, Jesus, he is the source and mediator of our sustenance. Jesus is the source and mediator of our sustenance. I just love the picture. Only moments before the apostles, we, we don't have enough, Jesus. There's no way we can do what you've told us to do. Give these people food. We couldn't even give them a snack, Jesus. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough food. It can't be done. And then I just love this picture in my head of them getting in line as Jesus just keeps making food. And they go with their basket, and they go, and they pass out the food, and they come back. And is Jesus run empty yet? Nope, he's still making food. And they get back in line. And the next basket gets filled up. And the next apostle goes off. And this happens until five to 20,000 people not just eat, but eat till they can't eat anymore. And there's still 12 baskets left over. But by the way, I think, don't think 12 is accidental. Jesus made sure that each and every disciple had a visible and physical reminder of just what he could do and how abundant his supply was. That's the point. They're lugging this basket around. I guess we didn't have any food, huh? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're getting it. This is driving the point home. Jesus is the source and the mediator of everything we need. Isn't that, isn't that kind of the point of the Lord's Supper, that we're saying that we are the ones who feed on him? And what that means is when we need grace from him, he doesn't run out. It's super abundant. When we need strength from him, when we, when we go to his word for food, it's, it's there and it's there in abundance. That's the whole point of this picture. Moses mediated food to the people of Israel in that he presided over them. 
But the, pe- the food didn't ultimately satisfy. They grumbled, they wanted quail, they wanted other things. And Elisha somehow mediated so that, so that food for him could feed a hundred. Elijah had a pot of oil that wouldn't run out and a bag of flour that wouldn't run out. But this is so much greater and so much more awesome. Truly what Romans 11.36 says is true. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Who is Jesus? He's the one you can come to and the supply doesn't run out. It might be impossible for you. You might not have what you need. I can't do whatever it is Jesus has told you to do. I can't be done. I'm on empty. I don't have the resources. Jesus does. And he doesn't run out. And you can come back again and again and again and again and get back in line and come back again. And he has enough for everyone of there. And then some. That's one thing we can learn about him. What do we see? That he is the source and mediator. Not only does it come from him, but he distributes it. You have to go to him. That's what a mediator is. He is the source of what we need, and he is the one who dispenses what we need. You need strength, you go to Jesus. You need grace, go to Jesus. You need help in time of need, turn to Jesus. What else do we learn? Jesus is greater than Moses and Elijah. Now this isn't primary in this passage here, but I can't help but thinking that by the time Luke's writing, it expects us to be getting to later in chapter 9, where Moses and Elijah themselves appear next to Jesus and talk to him on the Mount of Transfiguration and God singles Jesus out. That Luke expects us to be seeing through these preceding chapters how much greater Jesus is than those prophets, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha. Now that seems obvious to us, but for Jews in, 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 in Luke's day, Moses is a pretty big deal. He, he led the people out of Egypt. He, he, he beat Pharaoh in a showdown. The, the mountain quaked. He saw God face to face, sort of. And Elijah and Elisha? I mean, Elijah's the one who's going to return and be the herald of the Messiah. And what we see clearly here is the power and the miracles Jesus does are just unprecedented and far, far greater and outstrip anything done by Moses and anything done by Elisha. Who is Jesus? Remember, this is sandwiched in between Herod saying, who is this? And Peter's answer, (laughs) he's the one from whom we get what we need. He is the source and mediator of our sustenance. And he is the one who is greater than Moses and greater than Elijah and greater than Elisha. If you remember that phrase, and we'll study this in, in, I think, two or three weeks. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It's linking all the way back to Deuteronomy 18, where God tells Moses, I will raise from among your brothers a prophet like you. It is to him you must listen. And so when God says, that's him, that's my son, listen to him, it becomes clear Jesus is the greater prophet like Moses who is greater than Moses. That's, That's where this is headed. This is what we learn about who Jesus is. Finally, one one last point I want to make here. Jesus provides more than enough to satisfy them all. And that's just the emphasis on abundance. We don't have a God who has not owned... it, It would be great. Would it not be worthy of praise if we had a God who had sufficient grace? 
you have just enough grace for what you need. Just enough supply. He has enough. Barely. And we could praise a God who had enough. You would never die of hunger. You would never die of starvation. Because you had enough. How much grace? Just enough. Isn't the point here, the superabundance? Everyone is full. Everyone can't eat anymore. And there's 12 baskets that the disciples have to lug around as a reminder of the abundance of Jesus' provision and of God's grace. And we can be tempted, just like the disciples, to look at our problems and look with human eyes that don't raise up to heaven and see how little we have and how big the task in front of us is. And we can say, it can't be done, Lord. I quit. I give up. But where God has promised to give grace, he will give abundant grace. Where God has given us instruction and commands, he will give us the means to do it. There's nothing God calls his people to do that he will not empower them to do if they will come to him again and again and again. So I'm going to call the worship team up as we prepare for our final song, which I think is quite fitting. Satisfied. And, and the challenge for us is where will we turn? Disciples, all they can think of is their wallets and their travel bags of food. They don't raise their eyes to heaven. They don't ask Jesus to intercede. Yeah, Jesus says, come to me. I'm not going to turn you away. Come to me. No one who comes to me will be turned away. And if we do come to him, we, we will find the satisfaction of our souls and an endless supply of sustaining food, grace, and strength. Please stand as we sing.